Hey, music lovers, the Cannamom Show podcast in collaboration with Lambkin Guitars is giving away a custom-built, one-of-a-kind electric guitar built by Josh Lampkin. The solid one-piece hemp wood body includes a built-in glass bowl piece. Yeah, you heard me right. You can take a hit and then play a lick. Now's your chance to help the Cannamom Show crush cannabis stigma with your entry. Register for the Hemp Guitar Giveaway online at lampkinguitars.com. That's L-A-M-K-I-N guitars.com. The drawing will be part of a 420 celebration at the Goods Dispensary in Somerville, Massachusetts, where the guitar is on display for the month of April. But don't worry, you don't have to live in Mass or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N-Guitars.com If you're a cannabis business owner looking to expand into new markets and need guidance and support you can trust, consider Collateral Base a group that has done it before in multiple merit-based and limited market states. Collateral Base was founded by an experienced cannabis attorney with highly educated consultants with master's degrees and years of experience in the cannabis industry. The Collateral Base team is confident they know cannabis licensing better than any of their peers. And I encourage you to see for yourself. It just takes one phone call. If you're ready to expand your cannabis business into new limited markets, contact Collateral Base today at 309-306-1095. That's 309-306-1095. Or visit collateralbase.com. Welcome. You're listening to Casually Baked, the podcast. Home base for the can of curious. Thanks for tuning in. It's high time. We had a high time. Together. Together. Yes, it's a high time. We had a high time. Together. Hi, y'all. I'm Joe, your host in Cannabis Lifestyle Guide. And we're nerding out on cannabis education today with one of the industry's best and most passionate educators. You hear me say time and again how nuanced both the plant and our experience with it is. Well, the more you know, the better the plant and your relationship with it grows. So today's podcast is for anyone looking to dive into their can of curiosities and engage in big talk about our favorite plant. Jason Wilson is a natural products researcher and the cannabis science educator responsible for building Curious About Cannabis, the cannabis science learning platform dedicated to anyone curious enough to learn. Jason is also the author of a 550-page cannabis science textbook in use at a number of colleges across North America. He is also the producer and host of two podcasts. Curious about cannabis and isn't life curious? Which brings me to a word from our sponsor, MJ Relief, the muscle rub I co created with my curious can of soul sister, Dr. Monica Vielpondo. MJ Relief is CBD infused to address personal aches and pains. 
And from a recent inquiry, no, it does not contain THC and will not show up in a drug screening. Our challenge was, one, to not use THC, and two, to choose an entourage of other ingredients, all with anti-inflammatory, pain-relieving, and or skin-soothing qualities that would work just as well or better than competing topicals in the hemp and cannabis spaces. MJ is strong enough for performance athletes and gentle enough for sensitive skin. Explore our formulation and support your body and my small business at mjskinrelief.com. You'll always save 10% using promo code CASUALLYBAKED, all one word, at checkout. That's mjskinrelief.com, promo code CASUALLYBAKED. And if you're listening on your phone, scroll down in the podcast app you're using to see the episode notes where you'll find links to this offer and more from other Casually Baked partner brands. Shopping podcast affiliates is a win-win because you saving money on the things you want supports the production of this show. It's the friend economy in action. Now, in this chat with Jason, We talk about the unsung compounds in cannabis, essential oils and inhalation, testing lab culture, and the trickle-down effect for consumers. We also discuss THC and THC light alternatives, aka synthetic cannabinoids. We also chat legalization and patient empowerment. Learning the science of cannabis can be fun, and odds are, it will improve all aspects of your life. So smoke them if you got them and settle in. It's time to get casually baked. It's high time. We had a high time together. Together. Jason Wilson, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. We are all curious about cannabis here <laughs> at Casually Baked, and you, my friend, are full of information. And curiosity, yeah. Thanks so much for inviting me on the show. I've, um, I've seen Casually Baked around for quite a while. You've been going at it longer than I have, so um, it's cool to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Now, the thing that I find so curious about you and I is that when we were both starting to learn about cannabis we realized quickly how nuanced it was and that in order to organize our thoughts around it and learn it, we both started organizing books. Yes. Now you took yours to a whole new level. (laughs) Mine, I turned into a little resource guide, just a, a little pamphlet that I could carry around in my backpack, but you went on for 550 pages. <laughs> well, it was, it's, it was definitely a process. Like the, um, so the book we're talking about, the Curious About Cannabis book, the third edition released um, just in December of 2022. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. And it's taken me seven years, I think, to get to this point. I started teaching about cannabis science in these workshops I was organizing back in 2013 or 2014 or so. And this book came about because I was, one, I was working in these research labs studying cannabis and realized just from working with patients, like there's a lot of education that needs to happen that could help a lot of people in a lot of different ways. And so 
I started doing regular seminars through the local university there at Southern Oregon University and then um, started putting together these workshops. And then I realized, you know, there are really, really good books on growing cannabis. There are great textbooks on the pharmacology of cannabinoids that are really complicated, that are really only accessible to like graduate students. And then there's not a lot in between. Like there aren't uh, many cannabis science books that go into, you know, taxonomy, like why do we call cannabis the names we call it, or, you know, really gets into the cannabis chemistry in a way that lay people can access it that's not using a whole bunch of heavy terminology, you know, without any sort of context. Um, Nothing that went into cannabis testing for sure, which was really, you know, when I entered the cannabis industry separately from me being a patient, that was my professional focus was analytical testing. And so I knew that there were no good texts on that. And so I just started writing these essays that I would share with my students in the class. And those essays kind of stacked and became a spiral bound little book I would put together at Staples and give the students. And then in 2018, it became the first edition of Curious About Cannabis. And then um, every two years, I've updated it and released a new one so far. And this new edition that we've got is really the version of the book I had in my mind that I wanted when I first started working on it all those years ago. It's, you know, it's (laughs) very big, thorough, you know, it really feels like a textbook. And it has not just trivial facts about cannabis in it, but like activities and things to try to get people to do things to learn about cannabis and not just read the book um, or listen to a podcast episode. And that's something that I try to take really seriously of connecting people, not just to the theoretical learning, but to try to provide a pathway towards experiential learning and getting their hands on the plant if they can, even if it's just hemp or, um, you know, whatever context they can, depending on where they live. And so um, I'm really proud of it. I'm really proud of this edition of the book. Yeah, I've looked through it and I pulled out some things that I'm curious about. And I've had some listeners curious and asking me some questions about different things. So I thought you and I might could talk about those, which would then highlight some of the things in your book. But before we dive in, you know, this is kind of a a cannabis science Bible of sorts that you've created that touches on plant biology, genetics, horticulture, extraction, lab techniques, the legal and regulatory aspects of things, the therapeutic potential, and then also the future of cannabis science. So you have all of this really wrapped in here that's going to benefit not only someone who is a a doctor or a scientist or someone wanting to enter into the cannabis space, but also someone that really, like me, is taking my health and wellness into my own hands and trying to partner with plant medicine. So by learning these things, I become a better shopper. I become a better at-home extractor. And, you know, the the things that I've seen just at my quick glance of the preview copy that you sent me, um, it is packed full of so much good information. So uh, the first thing that I want to dive into, if we can. Yeah, let's go for it. All right. I want to talk about the unsung compounds of cannabis. Yeah, it's one of my favorite topics. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, the terpenoids, the flavonoids, the esters, I want you to give us, you know, kind of the 101 look at this stuff 
and, you know, what they do, why they're important, and why we should care about it. Well, this is a really great topic to start out on because it provides a really nice bridge to um, the future of cannabis that, that you mentioned is in the book. So, again, because my background in terms of cannabis science really comes from the lab and studying the chemistry of the plant and everything. This is something I geek out about um, really hard. So the cannabis plant, it makes these resins, as most of us know. These resins are formed in uh, one of six different types of trichomes. And in a couple of those types of trichomes called the glandular trichomes, particularly the capitate uh, sessile and capitate stalked trichomes, in these little trichome heads that look like little mushrooms, these oils are formed, and it's commonly known that that's where your cannabinoids are, like THC and CBD. That's where your terpenes would be, um, which are more or less the essential oils of the plant. Essential oils are a little more than just terpenes, but they account for the bulk fraction of that. These are very lightweight chemicals, at least in the resin head. They can be big chemicals, but in the resin head, they're very little chemicals that are very aromatic. So they're, they're tiny, so they float away into the air very easily, which is why you smell them. So terpenes provide some of the aroma of cannabis. There was a study done, I think it was in 2019 or so, that found that of the detectable cannabis aroma, terpenes are probably responsible for about 50% of that. The other 50% is made up of some of these lesser-known compounds, particularly volatile aldehydes, which is something a lot of people don't know about or, or talk very much about. Aldehydes are pretty simple chemicals. They often result from the degradation of other chemicals in biological systems, whether it's plants or whatever. And again, they're, they're pretty small, so they volatilize really quickly. And even in small, small concentrations, they have very potent smells. Think about the smell of like formaldehyde. You know, that's an aldehyde that most people, you know, have some familiarity with. So these are compounds that one, don't get tested for. Two, are very um, kind of hard to wrap our hands around. They change very quickly, they transform very easily, oxidize very easily, things like that. Um, but they, they account for a huge part of the aroma of cannabis. And this is really important because there was another study that came out uh, very, very recently that found that it's actually the subjective aroma qualities of the cannabis plant that often correlate with whether someone has a positive or negative experience. So these lesser-known compounds that contribute to the qualities of cannabis that are beyond cannabinoids and terpenes, they definitely matter. And science is definitely showing that these things that we don't have data for are definitely influencing patient outcomes as well as just, you know, even in a quote-unquote recreational context, just, you know, how much do you enjoy the experience or not. Um, so that's aldehydes and terpenes. When you oh, say that, it. I always have to bring things back to the layman consumer. Yeah. And so what you just said is our equivalent of the nose nose. Listen exactly. to your that, nose. That was the name of the scientific <laughs> paper that came out. It was called the nose nose. Or, you know, that was the, the main title. So if anyone wants to look up that study, you can go on Google Scholar and type in the nose nose cannabis and you'll find it. And it's super interesting and well written in a way that I think most people can can digest. Um, now, and that's another thing you have in your book is the best way to do your research, you know, places to look, 
the different search engines to use and that kind of thing. So, yeah. you know, that's really important because we don't get the full picture from mainstream media or from being YouTube scholars. You know, we right. need to to do our homework and find the the root source of information. And so you do a good job of outlining that. Well, it's a, it's a huge part of my classes when I teach. Um, something I always open my classes with is that my goal as an educator, particularly a science educator, is not to fill someone's head with trivial facts and hope they can regurgitate them, which is kind of how, at least in the United States, how the public education system has more or less been structured over the last 75 years or more. But my goal is to teach people how to learn and to teach people how to find information, critically evaluate that information, and to try to develop good skills for valuing that information as well as a good intuition, you know, sort of a bullshit meter of like this information that I'm reading, does it really vibe with what else I understand about cannabis or are there certain things about how this is written that tells me there may be a, you know, a big bias in that um, information or something like that. So teaching people how to teach themselves is in my mind, the educator's number one mission. And that's, I take that very seriously. And it comes through in the, in the book, I hope. Yeah. Amen. All right. So I derailed us. So what no, no are we, flavonoids? What do we, what do we talk so, about? Yeah. Next? So we talked about aldehydes, flavonoids. Um, those are quickly becoming like the next sort of buzzing chemical class after terpenes that people are learning about and getting excited about. And flavonoids, um, we all are familiar with all of these compounds. So flavonoids tend to provide a lot of the pigments of plants. And particularly if you eat a lot of blueberries, raspberry berries in general, flavonoids are providing, you know, the beautiful colors of berries that you see. Um, but also even in leaves and other parts of the plant, flavonoids um, provide a lot of different pigmentation ranging from even you know, sort of the light neonish greens to yellows, oranges, reds, blues, purples, um, all of those really interesting colors. And flavonoids are and have been known for a long time as being potent antioxidants. And cannabis contains a wide variety of flavonoids, a lot that are present in many different vegetables and other plants that are in our diets on a regular basis, but then also a at least three or so that seem to be unique to the cannabis plant. And I say seem to be because when it comes to natural products research, when we think we've found a chemical that is unique to a plant, we then are humbled by realizing, well, that's just because you haven't looked for that chemical in other plants. And then you can start to see, see it other places and derivatives of it and other places throughout, throughout life. But so far, there's canflavin A, B, and C, which are these unique cannabis flavonoids. Now, riddle me this. The flavonoids, for us to, you know, they have these benefits besides mm -hmm. making, you know, our purples more purple <laughs> yeah, and yeah. having fun colored, making you know. hash water. Yeah, making fun resin. Are we getting the benefits of those when we smoke versus eat mm. versus, you know, in. So it, it widely depends on how whatever product you're consuming has been prepared. So for a lot of extracts, no. Um, but I put a big asterisk on that. It really depends. 
Um, what about a live resin? So something that's been flash frozen. Well, a couple of things will matter. I mean, though, there should be some in there. The thing about some of these flavonoids is that um, canflavin A, B, and C particularly are a little... Um, I guess the best way to, to put this where most people understand it is it's, it's a little fattier than some of the other flavonoids that you find in a lot of other plants. And so it's a little easier to extract with the same sort of fractions that you would extract cannabinoids and terpenes and these other oil-loving components. But a lot of flavonoids are really more water-soluble. Um, and so extraction methods that are targeting oil-soluble components of cannabis, which is most of them other than ethanol, um, and even that because they make the ethanol cold to make it more selective, you know, even with that, it, it's tricky, and I'll explain more about that in a second. But oftentimes, extraction methods that are targeting cannabinoids are missing a lot of the flavonoids. Um, there's, of course, ways to reintroduce them, um, and there's bits of them that always make it through. So it's not like they're not present at all. It just depends. Well, and, and they so do when pass you said that, so a lot of the drinkables that we see on the market then, if it's wa- if flavonoids are water-soluble, uh, the majority of them, is that where we're going to see most of them be used well, in a beneficial way? That would be nice. If anyone listening to this makes cannabis beverages, this is something you should be thinking about. It's very easy. I used to do this in the lab for fun, and I actually have an activity in the book that teaches people how to do this too. You can do really basic flavonoid extractions at home if you just grind up cannabis that has some fun colors in it you like throw it in distilled water and shake it around a little bit, let it sit for about five or 10 minutes. And you'll see the color of that water completely change and you can filter it out. Sometimes it'll be very rosy, sometimes very pink. Um, It's actually, sometimes the colors that come through will surprise you, especially because sometimes when they come through, they oxidize and change color as well. So there's some fun experiments you can do with cannabis looking at these flavonoids, just doing, just with water um, so if I did that and I put it in a little paper tea bag and, mm-hmm. you know, steeped it like I would tea mm-hmm. and I drank that, there's no psychoactivity to it. I would just, yeah, you would what, just, what you would, would more or less, you know, you might have a little bit of, um, not enough to actually have any effects, but you might get some residual cannabinoids that just, you know, maybe mechanically fell off from the trichomes that are yeah. in the water or something. But yeah, for the most part, you would be getting these antioxidants, which are still um, theoretically, therapeutically very um, active. Antioxidants, um, you know, the whole science behind antioxidants and why people get excited about them is because, in theory, they're able to scavenge free radicals in the body that would cause tissue damage to healthy tissues. So the idea is getting these antioxidants in your body will hopefully help protect your healthy cells from a little bit of damage and provide a little bit of a buffer, um, in a sense, to help prolong the life of of your healthy cells in your body. So, um, yeah, drink your cannabis water. (laughs) And, of course, you can also do fun dye (laughs) projects at home. Um, We harvested a lot of the flowers from our garden and have a little play date coming up with some friends to dye some different things. So oh, maybe nice. I'll pull cool. out some of my pink boost goddess or yes. um, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Huckleberry Hill farms, you know, they've got some really nice pinks. Maybe I'll pull some of that out and 
I mean, yeah, pink, if you ever get pinkleberry, that's that's one I've I've always liked. Yeah, it's hard to not smoke that though. <laughs> I know, I know. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so now what about um, esters? So esters, I, I sort of group into kind of a group of compounds that falls outside of what you're going to smell and more into what you're going to taste. So esters and ketones are these other kind of classes of of chemicals, and there can be a lot of overlap when we start talking about esters and ketones. Some of these are, can be terpenoids and vice versa. You can get into like some chemistry craziness. But in general, an example of an ester that a lot of people are probably familiar with is the artificial banana flavor. I hope I'm not getting that mixed up. So this is, again, this is Well, one that's of what happens where, when you have a 550-page I was going to say, book. yeah, yeah, there's a lot of information <laughs> running through my head, and I'm like, I hope I don't get these chemical classes mixed up. It's possible. I have to reference my own book repeatedly because um, Well, and that's why you created with, but, it. That's the beauty yes, of it. Yes, exactly. Um, but there's an artificial flavoring for a banana that is in cannabis. Um, a lot of, like I said, these esters and ketones, they tend to provide some of what you taste, even when you're smoking. Um, and then there's also things like stilbenoids, which are compounds that a lot of people have not heard of or thought much about. And they're commonly used by the plant as a like pest defense mechanism, mm-hmm. but they also can have some therapeutic benefits that haven't been super well studied in cannabis yet, but have been in other plants. Um, and then there are also vitamins in cannabis. There's at least vitamins E and K. Um, not necessarily in the parts you smoke, um, but certainly if you're juicing leaves or eating seeds, you'll get those. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's a lot of interesting chemistry when it comes to the cannabis plant, um, both in terms of what people tend to smoke. There's a lot more going on. I talked about the fact that when you smoke cannabis, you're producing hundreds of chemicals that weren't even in the plant to begin with, and you know, and those are affecting your body. So there's just a ton of nuance. And I mentioned before that this topic connects around to another one of my favorite topics, which is the future of cannabis science. And one thing I try to encourage with my students is to take everything they're learning about cannabis and start to apply the, what I call the lens of cannabis science to other plants and start to recognize that all of the science that you learn when you're really excited about cannabis all of that science is applicable to all of nature, all sorts of plants and mushrooms and things. And you can really start to see the natural world in a, in a new way. And that's what really excites me about teaching about cannabis. I mean, cannabis is super fascinating by itself, but also maybe even more so the fact that it can be a stepping stone towards people, one, learning biochemistry when they never thought they could. I've had so many students that take my classes and are like, I failed science. I never took chemistry. There's no way I can do this. And I see them do really well. And so seeing what's possible when people have a curiosity and a passion and all they need is a little guidance to really nurse that passion into something really special, you know, it just, it makes you very encouraged of what's possible and, and I'm hoping that this all leads to people just thinking more about what they eat, um, medicines they take, all sorts of things. I think um, cannabis can be an amazing doorway to people learning a lot of science that's very practical to their lifestyles and their wellness and that sort of thing. 
That's exactly what happened to me. Yeah. Whenever I was able to learn about cannabis and use it in a targeted way and really understand mm -hmm. my why and then back out from it, I am no longer taking any pharmaceutical drugs. I don't drink as much alcohol. Yeah, you know, same. I lost almost 30 pounds and it's something that is a lifestyle. It's not uh, take this pill and have a quick fix. I mean, it truly teaches you to work in harmony with nature and listen to your body. Yeah. And you know, it's, it is a gateway drug, but it's not the gateway drug they try to tell everybody is. It's a, a gateway to more enlightened living. Yeah, I mean, that's that's my hope is that it the curiosity and passion around cannabis ends up, yeah, being gateways to people becoming more mindful and more deliberate in how they live their lives. I, you know, that's, I don't know, that's my whole motivation for teaching in general. Yeah. Um, but it's so cool to see it happen, you know, particularly in this context of cannabis. Yeah. Now, okay, I now want to jump over to, you know, we talked about terpenes being the quote unquote essential oils of the plant, mm -hmm. which is, you know, the kind of general term that I use when I'm describing it. Yeah. But I want to talk about those essential oils and the inhalation because okay. one of the, you know, the hot new things now is diamonds. And there's like this yeah. kind of soupiness around them. And that's, terp juice, you know, mm -hmm. that's these oils. And so I would like to get your take on what it means to inhale these things and if, if that's good or not. Yeah. Well, there's definitely a um, lack of research that's been done on this. The most research that I've been able to find is um, there have been a little bit of uh, toxicology studies done through OSHA looking at you know, what are classified as volatile organic compounds, of which terpenes are volatile organic compounds. So anyone wanting to kind of dive in into this topic outside of this conversation, that's a kind of good starting point to try to find what limited toxicology information exists in the first place. You can also look up safety data sheets on specific terpenes and find toxicology information there. However, a lot of these safety data sheets on terpenes do not have an indication for inhalation. So if there's not an indication that the product is supposed to be used that way, then those harm studies are not done and that data thus is not reported. And so one thing that I want to highlight is that when a lot of producers are making products, a lot of times they look at safety data sheets for terpene and other ingredients that they might be blending, like diluents, for instance, phytol or um, even MCT oils or, you know, other things that they're blending with some of these things. And diamonds is not the best example. It's a more thing about like vape pen, you know, sort of products. But these producers will sometimes mistakenly think that because the safety data sheet says that it's generally regarded as safe or grass, that they can however they want. But that grass designation is only applicable to the indicated uses on that safety data sheet. And I promise you, because I've worked with in so many labs and with so many companies helping them with their quality systems, you're not going to find a safety data sheet that tells people that they can smoke any of these things. And so right away, uh, there's just a lot unknown. And anyone who's talking about like, well, these chemicals are grass and thus are okay, 
Well, that's not how it works. Things that are okay to apply to your skin or even to eat in small amounts, that doesn't mean that it's okay to inhale that product. And, and the big issue here is how your body screens for toxins. When you eat things or when you apply things to your skin, you know, your skin has a variety of different layers that help keep different types of chemicals away from your blood vessels. Because once things reach your blood vessels, they're going through your body, and that's when you have problems if you're dealing with things that are toxic in small concentrations. When you eat something, your liver essentially performs that role. Things go through your digestive system, they go through your liver, they go through what's called first-pass metabolism, where um, a lot of those chemicals that came through get manipulated in different ways. You know, they get metabolized, and then they get distributed into the body. So there are these mechanisms of defense. When you smoke or vape, you're sending whatever chemicals are in that mixture, you're sending them directly into your lungs, which is surrounded by a membrane that's very thin with blood vessels right on the other side. And so a lot of those chemicals that are in that vapor or smoke will just pass straight into the bloodstream. That's one reason why when you smoke, you get high so quickly versus if you eat because uh, the THC is going straight into the blood vessels and then to the brain rather than having to go through your digestive system, through the liver, and then into the blood and, and to the brain. So there's that to understand of why these indicated uses are important and why when something's grass for one application, it's not necessarily grass for another application. Now, in terms of the terpenes themselves, in the trichome head, terpenes show up as usually no more than around 10% of a trichome head. I think that's a pretty good measure for where to draw the line in terms of adding cannabis terpenes into a formulation. I, in general, I suggest don't, not going over 5 or 6 or 7%, but I would definitely not go over 10 really, just because that seems to be the... Plants nature's that, threshold. Exactly. That's that's the plant's threshold. And we know that people have been consuming hash for a long time. So there's a little bit of safety assumptions we can make. Um, but pushing things higher, then we're getting into these worlds of the unknown. And some speculations you can have about terpenes is, well, one, a lot of pesticides are terpenes. A lot of terpenes are pesticides that can damage nervous systems in certain concentrations and disrupt systems as well as hormone signaling and other things like that. So there are potentially concerns that in a high enough concentration, terpenes could do some similar things like really disrupt some signaling. But even beyond that, even if they're not doing that, one concern that I really have is terpenes are excellent solvents because they're generally uh, very simple molecules Usually, um, if it's a true terpene, it's a hydrocarbon, meaning it's only got hydrogen carbon in it, which makes it um, very good at stripping away membranes. And so if you were to huff a solvent, one thing that happens is your membranes in your lungs and around your body start to degrade and they weaken, which means that contaminants from the air and other things get into your blood more easily. All sorts of problems happen. The same thing can happen with terpenes. Again, it has to be in a high concentration, frequent use, you know, that sort of thing. But you do have to keep in mind that these things are potent solvents, and you don't necessarily want to be dousing your lungs with a lot of solvent. 
So somebody that, you know, is a constant dabber, you know, this is all they do. I mean, those concentrations are far higher than nature's 10%. And especially, you know, like my original example of the terp juice around these, the diamonds. So if that was on the menu for me all day, every day, there's could potentially be problems down the road. Yeah, there's definitely a, there's a high possibility you're going to experience different types of damage to the lungs than you would expect to find if you were just smoking flour or something. And there's probably folks out there like, what do you mean there's lung damage from smoking flour? It's pretty minor, but um, just the effects from smoking terpene-rich concentrates, it's just a very different ballgame in terms of of the lungs. And it, it is those membranes that I would really worry about because you don't want to damage your lungs ability to keep out harmful things because there's tons of harmful things in the air all the time (laughs) that we don't want to be breathing in. Um, And like I said, that's not to mention the other potential toxicity concerns, which we don't really understand. Um, But most, most products other than some of the sauces and things that are fortified with like 50% terpenes, most of the other stuff is, is in a pretty good range. And even, you know, if someone's just an occasional dabber, um, I wouldn't be too concerned about that. I'm not a medical doctor. I cannot give you medical advice. That's the whole kind of premise of casually baked. Mm. We don't have to go balls deep every time. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And, and really in terms of if you're really trying to take care of your endocannabinoidome, you should be looking for, you know, what's your sweet spot? What's just the right amount to get you where you need to be, but not push you into another world of discordance. You know, I, sometimes I get a little nervous because people talk about, you know, like all cannabis is therapeutic and I'm like, I get where you're coming from, but it's, it's kind of unfortunate that Dr. Russo's paper back in the day that talked about endocannabinoid deficiency. um, It's a shame that that paper got so popular and only focused on deficiencies because there's another flip side to it. And I always tell people, really, you should think about endocannabinoid system derangements because you can have deficiencies, but also overstimulating the endocannabinoid mm-hmm. system is also a problem too. Yeah. And so it's, it's I want to have him on the balance. show. Yeah. I'd yeah. love to have him on the show to talk about that. Okay. So I want to shift gears a little bit because what we were talking about um, kind of leads me to some of the stuff about the testing labs, which you have Ooh, so yeah. much experience mm-hmm. in and about you know, the, the cannabis testing fraud, how that happens. (laughs) And then, you know, even tying in with that a little bit about the synthetic cannabinoids. Okay. And so I feel like all those kind of go together. So. Yes, they definitely overlap for sure. How do you, how do you want to start? Let me just set it up by saying when I talk to farmers, when I talk to product developers, and in my own experience with my own product being tested, you can send a sample from the same batch to 10 different labs and get yes. 10 different yeah. results. So I'll try to tie some of this all together with a couple of stories of things I experienced when I was working in the testing lab space, because I don't work in that area of the industry anymore, which is a blessing because it was a nightmare. And I think it's something people don't appreciate, just how bad it is to actually work in cannabis testing. So I got into cannabis testing in 
14. It was still very early. You know, one of the earliest cannabis testing labs started in 2010. So to give you some sense of, you know, this is, there are only a couple of labs in existence, the workshop, Steep Hill, most of them in California. And so I joined a lab as their first employee and we're like, we're going to build this cannabis research and development lab, prepare for testing, et cetera. And it was exciting because I come from a botany and natural products background. So I was like, we're going to do this right. And it's going to be awesome. And we're going to learn so much and help people. And at first it was kind of like that. So in Oregon, where I was living, where we were setting up this lab, the early model was that we were dealing with patients. Patients were doing home grows, bringing stuff in, trying to understand what its potency was. And that work was so incredibly fulfilling because you would literally be working every day with cancer patients, people with Parkinson's, all sorts of very debilitating conditions, and hearing their stories, seeing their faces, getting to know them because they would come in fairly regularly because they're taking control of their medicine and trying to do it themselves. And so providing the most accurate information possible was always, that's what we're trying to do. Because otherwise, if you're not producing accurate information, what's the point? All of this data is, you know, just becomes worthless. So we spent a couple of years developing some of the early cannabis testing methods. Uh, you know, there were a few in published literature, but they were not particularly good and didn't work for a lot of different types of cannabis products. So, you know, we developed these methods. We became one of the first accredited labs in Oregon. And things were marching right along. I forgot to mention, this was all before dispensaries were really operating yet in Oregon. Um, and sometimes people forget that that was a time that existed. Um, yeah. But, you know, and it's something I try to highlight of my experience in the industry. It goes back before any of the legal stuff. And it's been weird seeing all of these transitions. But once dispensaries were made legal, and it, it took about a year, maybe, we started seeing this trend where dispensaries were not wanting to buy product that was below 20% THC. And that was the arbitrary number. Actually, the initially, the arbitrary number was 18%. And then it went to 20%. And every year, that arbitrary number seemed to get knocked up a little more and a little more, um, where we had clients coming in the lab that said, hey, I can't sell this because it's testing at 17%. And that's an awkward conversation to have because you're like, well, I can run it again, <laughs> you know, but um, like, what do you mean? What can you do for me? And that concerned me. We also had clients coming in that would tell us about their experiences at other labs where they'd say, well, you know, so-and-so not going to name any names uh, told me that they could have my result in 24 hours and I'll be happy with it. Can you do that? Um, and that was alarming. And this is back in 2016, 2017 or so. Then we had one person come in, brought their, their pit bull with them, and they were strapped and very intimidating. I'll just say that. And they said, I dropped off a sample this morning. Where's my result? And I was like, I there's no way it's ready. <laughs> you know, we're having to do a full panel of testing. It takes, I mean, really 
in, in the broader natural products testing world, a lot of the testing that cannabis products have done to them, it would take you three or four weeks to really get test results back. And people <laughs> in the cannabis industry expect it like tomorrow. Yeah. And especially like, and if you shoot me or your dog bites me, it's going to take longer. Exactly. So like, what yeah. What are you doing? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And he just was hanging around, you know, just kept pressing us, trying to intimidate us. And it was just so weird. And it took me a little while because I'm a relatively naive and trusting person. It took me a little while to realize how widespread lab shopping had become. But what I did notice is that our lab was losing clients frequently and we couldn't understand where they were going or why. And then eventually we started to piece together that you know, our lab had the reputation of having the lowest numbers, quote unquote, which was really hilarious because we had that reputation before legalization. And as soon as labs all got accredited, all of the average potency results for our brief like couple of months were all right around where we had averaged the whole time. So it was very vindicating until it all went away. And now we're in a situation where lab shopping and fraud is just like accepted as part of the industry. And I thought it was crazy back in 2017 when I was seeing, you know, 32% THC results. Now I'm seeing, I literally kid you not, have seen 45, 47% THC results on cannabis flower, which is physically impossible. I can tell you from testing thousands of samples that Keef, you know, that you would collect in your grinder often tests at around 40% or so. Um, mm -hmm. So that bud of cannabis that includes leaf material, some stem, flavonoids, all of these other chemicals that we talked about, for all of that, for almost half of the mass of that thing to be one chemical, THC, um, I mean, you would literally see crystals of THC, THCA dripping off of the plant. So it's, it's become a big issue, and it's become like a well-known issue, and one that's very hard to catch or correct. Um, now, is it something that based on the type of equipment that you're using and, you know, the order and methodology of the way you do things, like if all of that were streamlined, that seems like that's the only way you could have consistent results and you can't force people to all buy the same equipment. Even, or even with that, um, you know, so my specialty became, and it, it wasn't my intention, but it was part of being an early employee and being kind of thrown into the deep end, but my specialties become quality systems and understanding um, how do you make your data legally defensible? I've been an, an expert witness in cases and things, um, and, and not just for testing labs, but also for product manufacturing labs. I help them get GMP compliant and that sort of thing. Um, and so I understand how auditing works really well. And there are a lot of ways labs can even if they've adopted the same methods and everything's standardized, there's still so much room to introduce bias that can be extremely difficult to catch, if not impossible to catch. And it's, I have mixed feelings about when I give talks about this because there's that part of you that's like, oh God, I'm going to teach more labs how to do the wrong thing. But then at the same time, I want to teach consumers and regulators and other stakeholders what these labs are doing so they can call them out on it and recognize it. And so there's a there's an hour and a half long lecture I posted on the Curious About Cannabis YouTube channel where I just kind of went through all the stages of sample handling 
from the moment that the product is sampled to the moment it's reported and all of this, the ways and steps in between that a lab can commit fraud. And the vast majority of those ways are ways that wouldn't show up on a paper trail. And some of them, even if you were observing the person while they're doing the work, you wouldn't know. It can be really tricky and, and um, you know, yeah, some, some I mean, of these labs are very schemy. That's disheartening as fuck. Like you don't yes, even know. Yeah. You feel like you're going in as an educated consumer being mm-hmm. able to read a label. And, the data and then when matter. you're like, well, I don't even know if this label is true or false. So, okay, well, I opened that can of worms. I'm not sure. I'm, <laughs> <laughs> well, the good thing, you know, the, 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 the bright side of it all, in my opinion, is that if enough people understand how the labs are doing this, and if enough consumers are calling BS on test results that are physically impossible, I mean, literally, if you see THC results greater than 28% on a flower, there's a very high chance that that data is bad. There is flower. I have seen it happen where it can get to 30, 32%. That does happen. But it's quite rare. Um, and again, I'm talking thousands of samples I've tested. It, it's fairly rare. So there's little things. And one thing that's interesting to me, so um, I just moved back to my home state of Mississippi after living in Oregon for a long time. That's been a huge culture shock. Um <laughs> But Mississippi legalized (laughs) medical cannabis, which is the only reason I would ever tolerate coming back. And so I have my medical card. We're legal. I'm not going to prison anytime soon. So that's good. Um, But one thing that Mississippi decided to do was institute a potency limit on flour, which I find interesting. And I don't support potency limits. However, there's a 30% THC potency limit on cannabis flour in Mississippi. I'm very interested to see what that does to this dynamic of lab shopping because if there's no if it's not legal to have flour above 30%, then producers are not incentivized to want those numbers, labs are not incentivized to boost numbers. And mm-hmm. in my scientific mind, I laughed at that legislation. I was like, well, in reality, there's not really anything above 30% anyway. So um they really haven't r- limited anything. It's really more about bringing the data back into reality. And so, of course, there's still going to be a bias because everyone's going to want to be as close to that 30% limit as possible. However, it's going to be interesting to see what that does overall. Yeah, you can keep us posted. You saying that now feels kind of a segue into talking a little bit about these synthetic cannabinoids Mm -hmm. and the fact that they're housed underneath more so this farm bill Right. And they're created out of CBD distillates and not necessarily by PhD chemists and whatnot. <laughs> and so then yeah. now we have the whole testing thing on the other side where there's pressure coming from these are non-legal mm-hmm. cannabis states who are pushing for the Delta 8s and 11s yeah. and everything else. So dive in there. Tell us what we need to know. Yeah, so all of that goes back to my early days of cannabis testing, too. Uh, So 2016 or so, we started seeing Delta-8 THC distillate start to come through. And it was immediately uh, super weird. I got yelled at by multiple clients because I would test it, and I would see all of these weird peaks. And I would say, okay, about 30% of this distillate is THC. 
I don't know what the rest is. Have fun. And but you're talking about, though, you're testing cannabis-based Delta-8. Mm. Or this is this hemp, the hemp seed. Where is this coming from? What's the <sighs> source plant material you're talking about? Well, that's a great question. No one really knows. Um, and I say that sort of jokingly, sort of not. So the stuff I was testing was in the medical and adult use market, although it may have been hemp because in Oregon it was all mixed because in 2014, that's when hemp went online in Oregon, um, you know, four years before the you know, most recent version of the farm bill that legalized everything nationwide. And so um, 2014's farm bill legalized research hemp programs and pilot programs in states that wanted to start them. So Oregon, of course, did. So it actually may have been hemp. I think it was now that I'm thinking back on all of that. The stuff, it has all of these peaks in it. I got yelled at by multiple clients because I tell them that their THC, their Delta-8 THC distillate was 30%. And they're like, no, I know it's 80 to 90%. Just look at it. And I'd say, well, look at my chromatogram and look at all of these mystery chemicals that I don't know what they are. Um, they're not THC, so I'm not reporting them as THC. And so going back to cannabis lab fraud, there, <laughs> there were clients back then that would say, well, I want you to add all those peaks together and give me a COA that says that this is, you know, 95% Delta-8. So I'm familiar with some of the fraud that's going on um, around those products, even going back before the farm bill, in places like uh, Mississippi and other states that still have had fairly significant prohibition. These other cannabinoids, these Delta-9 THC alternatives, although that's changed because now there's hemp-derived Delta-9 THC, which is a whole other issue, um, these other THCs and THC-like compounds have gotten popular Delta-8 THC is one, but then there's also like THCP, which is very similar to THC, but it has a longer carbon tail on the molecule and theoretically makes it more potent. THCO acetate, HHC, hexahydrocannabinol, um, all of these different cannabinoids have come on the market that all get people high to some degree in varying flavors. And none of this would really exist if THC were just widely available yeah. and, yeah, and the legal. Yeah, the plant were just legal. <laughs> yeah, and so there are multiple concerns. One is, what's the safety of the chemicals themselves? Some of these, Delta-8 is unique in that there's actually a fair amount of research on Delta-8 THC, and if the product is actually clean and pure, um, Delta-8 THC is as safe as Delta-9 THC is, mm -hmm. if not safer. But the problem is not with Delta-8 THC. The problem is all of these other, the entourage of weird chemicals that come along for the ride with Delta-8 when it's manufactured. Um, and then some of these other compounds, we, we generally don't know. We don't know how well, safe and, they are and what doses. And I don't want to skip over the fact that we, all these other chemicals, compounds that go along for the ride... There isn't any sort of testing regulation around right. all of this. <clears throat> so they may be there, but there, there's no onus on the yeah. manufacturer to be sharing that with you as a consumer. Right. And I, I have people from all over the United States that send me C of A's for hemp products to get my feedback on them. And what I've found is that a lot of companies are getting one certificate of analysis for one batch they made one time, and they're using that certificate of analysis for every single batch that they've made since. 
And so even if you have a test result for these products, um, you've really got to pay attention. One, does that test result actually correlate to the batch you have in hand? And secondly, I've seen a lot of just straight up um, test result fraud. People making up, you know, they'll download someone's PDF that they find online, they change the picture, they change some names with a, a PDF editor, and then boom, fraudulent C of A. Um, there's all sorts of ways to try to make it, you know, look real and make a QR code scannable and everything. So consumers get a false sense of security because they think like, oh, this hemp product has a C of A, um, so it's been tested for all these things. I'm good. And um, most of the C of A's that I've seen in the hemp market have either been extremely old and irrelevant to the product at hand, or they were straight up fraudulent. Um, and that's, that's a much bigger issue in the hemp space than it is in the medical adult use space in general. Which is all the more reason why people in these states need to come out of the closet and yes. start yeah. talking about the benefits of the plant because otherwise we are going down a rabbit hole that we don't know the long-term implications of people, you know, vaping mm -hmm. these synthetic cannabinoids or ingesting them or in a, any of it. We just don't know. Well, and it's, it's just, I, you know, I try to urge people to be cautious. Like, people have been smoking herbal cannabis for ages, thousands of years. We've uh, been using hash for thousands of years. We have to be careful not to get too comfortable with the safety profiles of cannabis flower and what I would say, you know, minimally processed concentrates and applying those safety profiles to every other cannabis adjacent product that's out there. Mm -hmm. um, that's a very uh, bad idea. And a lot of times these products, some of them that are on the market that I find questionable, it's not necessarily because of the cannabis component. It's often because of quality control issues related to the manufacturing of that specific product, additives that are in that product, uh, the dosing. You know, there's, there's all these other nuances to consider. And so it's with the way everything's exploding and more and more states, you know, changing their laws and loosening things up and more countries around the world doing so, you just got to really be careful and just remember that while some of these products have been around for thousands of years and humans have a long track history with, others not so much. And, you know, just having that moderation and trying to, you know, really take it easy with some of the new stuff until we learn more. It doesn't mean yeah. you can't try it, but just be careful and be mindful. Yeah. And it totally is the whole whole foods versus processed foods. You know, what do you mm -hmm. want in your diet? Of course, growing your own medicine and being more in touch with the plant. To me, those synthetic cannabinoids are equivalent to the processed foods up and down the, the aisles that pretend to be food mm -hmm. at your grocery store. Some um, of them are straight up manufactured drugs. I mean, that's something I've tried to get people to think about is uh, sometimes they boast so much on like LinkedIn about what they're making. And I'm like, you're really dabbling in manufactured drug territory here, yeah, which is... A hundred percent. Now, there's something interesting that I was looking at in your book that as someone who does like to do my own at-home extractions and, and making my own topicals and edibles and things of that nature. There was a study done in 2022 
that you reference and and do some corrections around boiling point versus evaporation oh point <laughs> and vapor pressures of the different cannabis constituents. Mm-hmm. The difference between what we thought we knew and what we now know is pretty significantly different. So I would love for you to give us the 101 on that. Well, the main issue um, that you're highlighting is that the listed boiling points for cannabinoids and terpenes, that's been published in a lot of books, including the first edition of Curious About Cannabis, um, has been wrong. And it's taken a while for anyone to really do the formal study to get it all cleaned up and corrected. And part of the reason some of it's wrong is just because there are some nuances to the data sets that weren't indicated. So some of the things that drive boiling point is obviously temperature, but also you have to take into account atmospheric pressure. And when you mix those two ingredients, pressure and temperature, they influence each other. Pressure influences temperature and vice versa, and all of that will influence at what point something will boil. So basically, a lot of the old boiling points for cannabinoids particularly, um, they did not have the proper atmospheric pressures associated with them. And so they were just wrong. So the study that was done in 2022 was a really nice, thorough study that just went through and looked at what are the evaporation and boiling points of these cannabinoids, how does it compare to the old literature, and how do we kind of clean all of that up? I don't remember the title of the paper, but folks should be able to look it up. It is from 2022. It's very recent. Um, And maybe we can add to the notes or something. It's really fascinating for people that are extracting and really need accurate data on this stuff. Um, Highly, highly recommend looking this paper up. But some things that they noted is that in some of the old literature, the concepts of boiling point and evaporation points were um, confounded. And so when you think about if you're boiling water and you have a pot of water on the stove, you see steam rising from the pot before it ever boils. So you know when you see that, that the water has reached an evaporation point. So things are moving around enough that you are getting molecules of water to rise up and, and leave the, the pot and the mixture, but not enough that the water's boiling yet. That's the easiest way to understand the difference between evaporation point and boiling point. And basically, a lot of the old literature just got those concepts confused. And so the numbers that we saw in charts and things, they were just all mixed up. And another element to this, too, is that some of the old chemistry research that was done on cannabis um, misidentified THC as well. So there's some old studies looking at the boiling points of cannabinoids that goes back to, the I think, the 1930s or 40s. So what you're telling us is that, you know, they've been focusing on boiling point, but it's really the evaporation point and the vapor pressure. Those are the two key components, not the boiling point. Yeah, not necessarily. Yeah. A lot of people care more about evaporation point than boiling point and don't realize it. Yeah. Got it. Mm -hmm. So let's just talk about what the numbers were for THC. So, you know, we've always learned what was it, around 200 degrees or something is what we were told Fahrenheit when we're like making an oil or something. Don't let it get above that temperature before it breaks. But then the new 
information. I swear it was like 400. I know. I'm trying to look it up to make sure I don't get it wrong because I've got the book right here. Good. Uh, and I don't want to tell people the wrong thing here. Let's see. The previously reported boiling point of THC was somewhere around 157 to 200 degrees Celsius or 315 to 390 degrees Fahrenheit. The adjusted one based on this 2022 study um, is the boiling point of THC is actually 425 degrees Celsius, 797 degrees Fahrenheit. And the whole point of that is that that's not actually where you need to go. Boiling point is not actually what you're aiming for with most applications. You're actually aiming for evaporation point, which is much, much lower than the boiling point. You know, these are numbers that are theoretical numbers in ideal scenarios. And the truth is everyone's unique environment is different and everyone's parameters for things are going to be slightly different. So I don't think this actually changes too much. I mean, I think the way that people have figured out how to do things, if it's working for you, you keep doing it. This really connects more to research and development extraction labs and product formulation labs and things like that, that are trying to do very detailed distillation and trying to separate chemicals based on their boiling points. That's where this really comes into play. I think for most home processors, it's kind of an interesting fact, but it probably won't change much about what you do. Well, for me, it makes me like less concerned that I'm going to break it. Yeah, sure. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, oh, this, yeah. Yeah. I'm like, Mm -hmm. this is not as, That's a good point. It just made it seem easier. Yeah, I like that. That's more a, that's idiot really proof, I guess. <laughs> yeah. No, there's a lot more wiggle room than you thought there was. Yeah. Yeah. So please experiment. Try shit at home. Somebody in the comments was saying, grow your own. All those problems are solved. And it's true. You know, if it's legal to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And if it's not, then do your civic duty and get involved in your local mm-hmm. politics and change the rules in your own municipality. That's what we're working on here in Mississippi. One of the big uh, tragedies is they don't allow home grow for patients. Um, And so in terms of my own activism, that's the number one thing I care about, really. Um, Yeah. Because I think that's, well, I mean, one, the stupidity is is glaringly obvious. Like, what do you mean you can legally possess it and use it, but you can't grow the plant? But also, you know, it's about patient empowerment. You know, the idea that, that someone can't produce this on their own. Um, I don't know. It's well, and that should be a very troubling, you know, concept to me. Yeah, it should be a red flag for people that their governments don't want them to be empowered to grow their own medicine. Yeah. Yep. Like, why you want to keep control over me? You want your thumb on me? Like, well, and it's a shame too because growing cannabis itself is therapeutic. I mean, you know, just the the process of tending to the plant and carrying it out to harvest and making your own medicine, all of that hands-on experience is also therapeutic. And um, the idea of keeping the system in such a way that it's like, well, no, you're dependent on what we present to you. And in a lot of states, it's in closed packaging. So, you know, I try to let people remind people, especially back in Oregon, how privileged they are that they even get to smell their cannabis before they buy it. You know, I, yeah, I'm not happy with any of these laws that restrict patients from being able to organoleptically inspect product before they buy it 
or that doesn't allow them home grow. Um, those two things particularly cause harm, direct harm to patients. Yeah. Um, I'm new back to Texas and the medical program here doesn't include flour. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You can get their oils or the edibles or things like that, but you can't have yeah. flour. That's like insane to me. It is. So yeah, uh, I've got work to do in Texas too. Yeah. And it's, you know, there's, there's still a lot to be done and it's important that no one becomes complacent. Um, I think sometimes, especially in states like Texas or Mississippi, where people have been fighting for access for so long, you know, they finally get it. And I think that there's such a sigh of relief that they've made it that far that sometimes people, you know, their steam kind of runs out in terms of pressing for more and and wanting more change. Um, If anyone listening to this that's in states like that, like, don't don't give up because you've you've really got to keep fighting for a system that truly supports people and and that doesn't lose sight of the patients some of these medical programs that come up in states like they're called medical but you know like i said if you're not letting patients smell the product or grow their own or be able to you know have more involvement with the cannabis plant i i I do believe that causes harm and is not in the patient's best interest so as you're saying all that, I'm like, you know, as soon as you cross the finish line, you realize it's the fucking starting line. <laughs> yeah, exactly. To a whole other race that you weren't planning on running. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yep. So much so. Yeah. All right. So what you're doing is so important because education is the basis and the foundation for all of the different things that we might want to do, whether or not it's being an educated consumer, being someone who wants to enter into the cannabis industry, someone who's trying to be a master formulator, you know, someone who's trying to be a doctor or nurse practitioner that is trying to blend these Western methods that they've been taught and sometimes brainwashed with into introducing you know, the endocannabinoid system and phytocannabinoids as a real option for their patients. So, you know, you're touching a lot of different people with your work. Now, you have the book, the third edition has just been released, but you also now have an educational platform, you have Mm -hmm. a master class that you're starting, you have workshops, maybe certain ones are made for certain people, if you want to just kind of highlight... Who wants to, you know, go for which piece of information so they know how to stay connected with you and continue their journey with cannabis? Yeah, well, thank you for the kind words. I appreciate it. So the Curious About Cannabis, I think of it as an ecosystem at this point. There's all of these overlapping components that kind of all work together and provide different things for different people, depending on what your goals are. You know, so we we have the book. You know, like I mentioned, it is a pretty serious book. It's designed to be a college textbook. Um, there's several universities in the United States and Canada that are using it. Very organically, it's really cool to see that happen. Um, so there's the book that I recommend for, particularly for educators and clinicians, as well as anyone who's just like super, super nerdy on cannabis science. And like you're really ready to go there. The book is a great place. Um, We also have, as you mentioned, the learning platform. So 
the Curious About Cannabis learning platform, you can access it through the website cacpodcast.com or curiousaboutcannabis.net. You can sign up for free and you get access to courses that I'm building and then courses that I build in collaboration with some of my colleagues and, and friends of mine that are all scientists and clinicians, researchers in different fields. And you get free access to college-level courses. The only thing you don't get access for free is just the ability to get a certificate to show you finished it, but you still get access to all of the um, video content and everything like that, so you can learn for free if you're curious and want to um, go that route. We also have the upgraded membership, which is only 5 bucks, and it gives you access to some extended classes as well as being able to get certificates for anything you complete if you need those to show them to somebody. And so that's that's kind of a good entry point for a lot of people, especially if you're newer to cannabis. I usually recommend that, getting on the platform. Uh, we have a Discord with hundreds of people on it that are all interested in cannabis science that you know will chat and share things. Um, and there's a research feed there. So it's a really nice place to get plugged in. Um, then if, when you're really ready to do, to like take the deep dive, I would say our events are a great opportunity for that. And the biggest event we do every year is the Curious About Cannabis Masterclass. I've called it different things in the past. I finally settled on the Masterclass this year. Um, and this I like a, that. Everyone knows what a Masterclass is. That was the thing, I yeah. I kind of yeah. tried to avoid it for a while. I was like, I don't want to just like copy something, but at the same time, it is the best term. And I, I actually got really worked up in my head about it of like feeling weird about calling it a masterclass. And so I looked up the actual definition and I was like, okay, it does meet the definition of a masterclass. Yeah. But it, this is a six month intensive class. If you've taken any other cannabis classes, it's probably unlike anything you've ever done before. The focus is on all things cannabis science. We go through the textbook from front to back um, I bring in over a dozen special guests. There are a lot of people you hear on the Curious About Cannabis podcast, a lot of different scientists, doctors, and things that I'm friends with and that support Curious About Cannabis. They come in and meet the students and give presentations and answer questions. And this year, we've got some really great guests. We've got Dr. Ethan Russo is um, coming in to talk a little bit about cannabis um, toxicology and cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome and some things like that. Um, we've got Dr. Allison Justice coming in and talk about the biology of the plant. Um, Dr. A.D. Ray, who was one of the researchers who published the nose-nose study that I was referencing, mm-hmm. um, she'll be there presenting that study and talking about the implications of that study and um, with the class. Um, just lots and lots of really great people. Reggie Gardino is um, one of my buddies that I love connecting with who's a geneticist, so he'll be talking about cannabis genetics and, and breeding and, and all of the science that kind of goes into that. I mean, it's great. We've got 14 special guests for this one. Um, so now, it, over the six months of this masterclass, how often do you meet? So we meet every other Thursday live. So it's all on Zoom. Uh, we meet every other Thursday for that whole six months. And then occasionally, depending on as we decide as a group, we might meet more than that. But at a minimum, um, it's every other Thursday. And every student that's in the class also gets three one-on-one sessions with me as well so that we can, you know, apart from the class, really understand, like, what are you interested in? What's your passion? What are you trying to get out of this? Um, What kind of information and experience is going to set you up the best once you leave this class? And 
um, one thing that's really special about the masterclass is I've designed it so that you have all this curriculum, you have the special guests coming in, that's all great. But then the whole time you're working on a special project that's that I work with you to make um, that's uniquely crafted around your passion, your interests, and you work on that project the whole time. And then at the end of the class, everyone presents on what they've sort of become little, you know, uh, limited experts in. You know, they all have their subject areas they picked and have been studying the whole time. They give presentations to their peers. And in this way, again, going back to the concept that I want to teach people how to learn. And I also want to teach people how to share information. And so that component really takes it to the next level where everyone isn't just sort of passively absorbing information, but they're actively engaged and they're teaching each other. And that yeah, gets me really, really excited. Um, so that's the Curious About Cannabis Masterclass. It happens every year, um, usually starts around March. This year it starts on March 23rd. Um, and you can learn more about that at masterclasscannabis.com or if you're at cacpodcast.com, just look at our events page and you'll see it there. And you can yeah, see all the it, special guests. I think there's less than 10 slots still left. I looked yeah, at your website nine, this morning. There's nine left. And there's also anyone who's watching this live um, or sees this very quickly. We do have scholarships. Um, the scholarship application window is still open through today. Um, so tomorrow is when I will pull all the applications and start looking at them. And we have two full scholarships we're issuing and two half scholarships we're issuing unless we get enough signups. So I have a program where every two full paid signups, I'm able to pay for half of someone else's um, scholarship. So we kind of have this program where if you are able to afford it and join the class, you are also helping someone else who can't afford it to help them get into the class too. And that's something that um, seems to have resonated with people. So yeah, there's nine spots left plus those scholarships. Right on. Well, I appreciate what you do and the color you add to our cannabis oh, world. Thanks. This morning, texted one of my friends, and I was like, you may already know about this book, but if you don't, you need this book. <laughs> and I sent her a screenshot of a page, and she was like, oh, my God, who's the author? Where do I get it? <laughs> so That's I awesome. told her she used a promo code casually baked, all one word, she would Excellent. get a 10% discount. I said, I don't know if it's live yet, but it should it be. Will yes. Be. And that, um, that should apply to the book as well as anything else curious about cannabis related. I made that. So any, any fans of yours, if they want to interact with anything curious about cannabis, whether it's a course event, the book or whatever, if they use that code, they should be able to get the discount. Unfortunately, the book right now is out of stock from me. People can get it on Amazon if they want. I'm working on getting more, but, um, the launch of the book, I was not prepared for, and we well, cleared that's out. a good problem to have. It it is, yeah. Just I I hate not being able to offer it to people when they want it, and having to send them to Amazon. Yeah. At the end of the day, right. Amazon gets their cut anyway, so it's yeah. Kind of like what's, You're dancing with the devil with those yeah, guys all the time. Exactly, but yeah, casually baked. If you use that code, you should get ten percent off just about anything in the curious about cannabis ecosystem. Right on. And be sure to check out the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Yes. Um, How often do you put out new content? Well, I had a big down year last year while I was moving. This year, I'm trying to make up for it. So I'm getting my schedule filled right now. 
So I'm hoping to get back to what I used to do, which was approximately every two weeks posting an episode. And I'm also posting lectures on the podcast, too. Some people seem to like those um, recordings from events. So um, it sometimes you'll catch something, um, you know, every week for a few weeks, but if not, every two weeks or so. Right on. I don't know about you, but I'm buying that book. If today's chat resonated with you, head over to the podcast 241 show notes at casuallybaked.com to learn more about Jason and the Curious About Cannabis educational platform. And if you're interested in networking, business collaborations, or wellness lifestyle coaching, email your messages, requests, or can of curious questions through the website, or you can always DM me on social. When I'm there, I'm at Casually Baked on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, The Weed Tube, and Truth Social. However you decide to support our highly responsible cannabis community, thanks for doing your part to Puff Puff Pass It On. Casually Baked, the podcast was created, recorded, and produced by yours truly. Editing and sound design are in the capable hands of Jamie Humiston at PodConnects. The podcast theme music is by my highly talented friend, Seth Walker. If you aren't familiar with Seth's music, you can find High Time on his album, Gotta Get Back, wherever you're buying your music these days. I know he didn't create High Time for me, but it sure as shit sounds like he did, right? I hope you'll tune in next time. Thanks for hanging out. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, my name is Kira Reed, and I'd like to invite you to be inspired by the women who are leading in the cannabis industry. Each week, we will discuss empowerment, leadership, and what it means to be a woman in charge in marijuana, hemp, and CBD. As the founder of the Women Empowered in Cannabis community, I have had the great pleasure to get to know many brilliant and talented women who are CEOs, executives, politicians, advocates, and community leaders that are focused on creating a cannabis economy that is just, fair, and equal. We'll learn how these women make decisions, how they navigate a predominantly male industry, and what they're doing to level the playing field for women. I hope you'll join us.